Yeah, plenty of confetti. Huh? Plenty of confetti. Plenty of confetti, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I forget about that sometimes. You know, I never forget, forget about the dumb shit that Hashtag never forget. Confetti. <laughs> 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 That's what somebody else made a meme of, like, the, you know, like, they had, like, the Catholic Church, like, burning? Uh-huh. Uh, you remember, like, the uh, uh, Trump, uh, Hurricane Maria, uh, I believe it was her, the paper. Yeah, yeah. Paper that towel. was my favorite. Somebody did that, like, for the church, like him, like. <laughs> Throwing the paper towel. Oh, that's my favorite meme so far. Are we all set? Yeah. Yep. Hey, it's State of the Revolution, the Michigan Progressive Podcast. I'm Benjamin Klon. On our panel today, we have Zachary Reinhardt. Hey, folks. Ali Gonzalez. Hello, hello. And Mara Zumberg. Hello. As we tape this, it is Thursday, April 18th. And thank you for joining us this week. You can find us on Facebook at Michigan Progressive. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also help support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive. And just so everyone knows, we are sharing a building with the Capital City, Capital City Film Festival this evening. So we may pick up a, a bit of background noise. But we've got a very exciting show for you today. Later on in the program, we're going to be talking to physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, and progressive activist, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. We're going to be getting into a conversation about Medicare for All and the fight to implement a single-payer health care system in the United States. But before that, let's talk about the news. This last Monday, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris went up in flames. Having been built in the 12th century, the cathedral is one of the most famous buildings in the world. The blaze destroyed the spire and collapsed the cathedral's roof, but most of the structure was saved from total destruction. The French media have reported that the fire may have been linked to a renovation project the cathedral was undergoing, um, and there are many people across the world who are very upset by this incident, with some of the wealthiest people in France pledging hundreds of millions to have the cathedral rebuilt. Um, I know that our panel has a lot to say about this, and we're going to start with Ali. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on this? Well, obviously, we all know, it's common knowledge, that um, people in Western society only care about Western society and only care about people who look like them. Um, so it wasn't a surprise. I think that I read that they raised, it hasn't even been a, a full week yet, and it's a billion that's already been raised in this kind of pissing contest mm -hmm. um, with the like richest people in France. Um, not surprised by it. Upset? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know Salma Hayek's husband, he was the first to um, pledge some money. And, like, this guy, I mean, is completely loaded. He owns Gucci. He owns Alexander McQueen, um, St. Laurent. Wait, Salma Hayek is married to the guy who owns Gucci? Mm-hmm. Oh, Balenciaga. I did not Saint know Laurent. that. Oh. This man is the, like, second richest man in France. And uh, when he had vowed to donate, and I can't remember how many... I think it was 300 million. I can't exactly remember how much it was. Um, immediately after his like uh, adversary was like, well, we're going to double or triple that. And we're going to triple that donation in this like pissing contest. Um, and then after that, it was also like, I think it was the CEO of L'Oreal, <laughs> the um, beauty goods supplier. They were like, mm. we will also be matching that price. <laughs> Tim Apple also joined in. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, a, that's, it's just measuring each other's dicks. 
Yeah. Well, and I, was I a, heard that what? was euros that they're they're pledging to, not just dollars. So that's yeah, like more. more. That's, it's like, like more than change that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's it's really 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 crazy. Yeah. So by just by today, People Magazine said that they had raised over a billion dollars for um, Notre Dame, which is um, insane when you consider that like Vatican City is sitting on like one of the richest enterprises globally. Um, it just astounds me that they couldn't do that themselves because mm-hmm. uh, it's not like they're doing anything else, really. Right. And and it's just funny. Like, I uh, I posted on Facebook. I was like, don't talk to me about charity. Like, no one cares about the people in Flint. No one cares about the people in Puerto Rico. No one cares about the people in Haiti. But we're all upset about this one, like, event in France. And I'm not to say that it's not upsetting, mm-hmm. but... Like it, it really goes to show where people put their dollars, like yeah. where they feel. Yeah. Well, one of the things I saw was that um, the pre- like President Macron, he had like he he vowed to rebuild the cathedral or whatever, and it's like, well, that's nice, but also, are aren't you gonna do anything about like the riots that are happening in your streets, like every in, Saturday, in, like the twentieth week November? or something like that? Right. Yeah. The people pro- protesting like the just severe austerity that like that you're putting on them. Yeah, he's going to let the military deal with them. That's what he's going to do. Yeah. Like... I think this uh, definitely kind of uh, exemplifies the idea that uh, capitalists always put property uh, over people. You know, mm-hmm. like this, this appreciation of property and things uh, over the, you know, like actual people's lives. You said, you know, Flint, for instance. You know, I, I would have loved to see um, some of these wealthy people come to the support of Flint like they did with the with the church. Yeah, the leader right. Gucci to be like, I'm going to donate hundred and you know, twenty million dollars to fix Flint's like and we wouldn't even have needed that much mm-hmm. is a thing. But it's also really important, like it it is the property over humanity like that we see in capitalism a lot. But specifically monuments in white countries because Rio de Janeiro's National Museum burned down like what last September and um they could not get the funds that they needed, not nearly as quickly either, as they did for Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And right. not to mention all of the heritage UNESCO heritage sites that were destroyed by Daesh in Syria and around like, you know, um the Middle East. Whereas all the mosques that have been like completely decimated in the Middle East and there's so much of that that holds so much history that doesn't register in Western history. No, it's yeah. important. It predates that Western history. Right. It, it yeah, really yeah, yeah. It's I mean it's it's sad but it's not surprising. It's just one of those good old capitalism things. Yeah, yeah. and we've I think someone someone has brought it up on this show before that like this idea that uh, it's okay for people to be billionaires because they'll you know, they'll give their money charitably to help people and that's just absolute horseshit. I mean, like there there are any number of billionaires that could have put up the money or like work together to put up the money to fix the fight the pipes in Flint, but no one has done that. Right. No one. Right. And, and it just goes to show that charity I mean, well, it's like it's nice, sort of like really the practice itself and the institution of charity is is just a thing that's used to protect and indemnify capitalism. Yeah, it's yeah. PR. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just PR. Yeah. Yeah. And there was backlash because um, a lot of people in France were like, oh, these big companies are only donating this charity because they get insane tax breaks um for these like you know however the threshold that they pass when they do these charitable donations um 
and I'm trying to, I can't remember what the man's name is, who was the first to donate. He goes, we've already exceeded the amount um, needed for those tax breaks. Uh-huh. That was his defense. So it almost kind of makes you like think like, okay, so that is the only reason that you're donating in the first place. You're know, like, oh, this is just different. This is because it's Notre Dame and yada yada. And Selma Hayek was like praising him, this like big man baby on, uh, you know, Instagram. And she was like, he did didn't take the tax break. This is just from the bottom of his cur. Like, it doesn't matter if you say it in French. It's still unbelievably stupid. In fact, it might be more pretentious. Right. I don't literally give a fuck. The owner of Valenciaga, they sell $500 hats, baseball hats. And this is like, this is what you're donating money to, the biggest church in the the entire world, yeah. what is it's it? not Ca- like the Catholic Church doesn't have the Catholic money. Church isn't yeah. it doesn't need for so, anything. Is it, Vatican like thirty billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vatican like, City like, sits on so much money, so yeah. much. I think money. I read that it's been estimated that the Catholic Church ha- spends like one hundred and seventy billion dollars just like in like U.S. operations or something like that. Yeah, I it's wouldn't insane. be surprised. One of the, uh, <clears throat> I think there was, a, there was obviously a, a big backlash against it, and uh, one of the things, a, a silver lining of it is the fact that, um, you know, people pushed back and said that, you know, there was three churches in Louisiana that burned down, and they weren't getting nearly the attention they deserved, and mm-hmm. uh, now they've actually started to get attention. Um, yeah, and pe- uh, Yashir Ali had to basically guilt people into donating. Mm-hmm. So they finally mm-hmm. have exceeded that GoFundMe, but it wasn't until people were like, this seems kind of um, off the attention that Notre Dame is getting, and then all the white guilt funds poured in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, moving on to our next story. Um, also this last Monday, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders did a town hall on the Fox News channel where he answered questions from audience members and moderators Brett Baer and Martha McCallum. Garnering over 2.5 million viewers, it was the most watched town hall of the election season so far. Even President Trump watched it and tweeted about it. (laughs) He seemed pretty pissed off, which was, of course, very funny. Um, Ahead of the broadcast, there were many Democrats who were angry at Sanders for legitimizing Fox News as a network. But the response after the town hall was overwhelmingly positive. Now, with other 2020 candidates uh, in talks with Fox to do their uh, to do town halls of their own. Follow the leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you uh, did you guys tune in for this? Did you guys no, watch it? I didn't watch it. I didn't end up watching it. No. Oh, right. yeah. I watched it and it was glorious. I thought it, it was. was great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were. You know, everyone was like worried that uh, Bernie was going into a trap. Uh, and uh, little did they know it was actually Bernie setting the trap because uh, he he made them look absolutely ridiculous. He did. Um, my by far, and it probably got the most attention. And my favorite uh, part of the entire thing was when uh, Brett Barrett <clears throat> asked the crowd, uh, "How many of you have private insurance provided by your employer?" And nearly everyone raised his hand. And I think he was expecting the next question to be like the gotcha moment. But he's like, "How many of you would switch to Senator Bernie Sanders' plan?" every hand remained up mm-hmm. and and immediately he's, he tries to pivot and like pretend like that didn't just happen <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was it was absolutely beautiful um I mean, like you said, every every like hardcore right winger from Trump to Hannity to all of them are um, now all of a sudden haters of Fox News because Sanders um, made them look like fools. Yeah. <laughs> One of the funniest memes I saw from this was uh, it was like 
Sanders talking to uh, Bear and McCallum and just says, none of you seem to understand. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in oh, here God. with me. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Which is just like so great. I think it was like it was the second time that quote's been used for progressive because then AOC uh, used, AOC, yeah. AOC tweet, like, tweeted that quote. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like that uh, that idea. I, I, I think this keeps happening. I mean, uh, tangentially related, but uh, AOC was invited to talk to uh, um, co-workers down in uh, Kentucky recently by a Republican representative and she was like, yeah, I'll do it. Absolutely. He retracted because they they, uh-huh. they they think that we're scared of like going into their territory, going into these places. And when, progressives in, just in, are not. Exactly. And in reality, socialists and communists want to radicalize co-workers and they want to radicalize like the most exploited laborers in the country. Of course she said yes. Yeah. So right. seeing that, seeing like just like the, the right wing backfire happen so hard is just glorious. And I'm 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 here for it. No, I, uh, my favorite thing was how receptive like that audience was. Pretty much the <laughs> whole debate. I think that the uh, moderators were like, um, not just at that question either. Yeah, you but, could tell like there was like a general frustration like with both of the moderators. Like they were just like, damn it, we've asked him. Like, how how are we gonna get him? Like we we just can't. We're trying to pin him down, and it, it just isn't happening. He's like, just using his words. <laughs> He's connecting with them, and I can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought that it was I thought that it was really interesting too that Trump watched it and then like also like tweeted about it and said that it was like weird to watch. Like, very specifically weird to watch. Um, and he called um, <laughs> Brett Byer smiley and nice. So I don't know if that was what was weird. Was that maybe he wasn't mean enough or mm. something? But I know that he, Byer had fired I mean, back. they were both smiley and nice. Like, like it was like a veil like over their, like, seething resentment of Sanders. Yeah, it's almost just, yeah, it's that kind of weird thing where it's like, is this just, like your code to tell them like i'm displeased like i'm displeased with how this went it was weird to watch like i could have understood even hard to watch like oh maybe the tides are turning you know it's like you're obviously intimidated mm-hmm. yeah by uh, this he also said uh we have donna brazil now as if like you know very uh Freudian slip there mentioning that uh you know fox is basically a state propaganda network he believes that yeah. it's, it's his network so mm-hmm. the idea that like his network would give any credence to the opponents is just like blasphemy to him so yeah and uh yeah, pretty great. It's it, I think uh, part of that is the fact that Fox is kind of in this like balancing moment cuz like obviously they want to like uh remain committed to the president but at the same time uh Tom Perez has said that they won't be doing debates with Fox News um because of that close connection between Trump um and uh Fox News and he doesn't mm-hmm. believe that uh, a fair debate can happen. So I think Brett Baer and the uh, other matter I'm forgetting her name currently but uh oh Martha McCallum. Yeah, Martha McCallum. Um they are kind of having this balancing act of like trying to show that they can have like a fair like forum and also like having to stand up for Trump and like have that hard line. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic that they had to kind of uh, go through with. I mean, and I will say, I mean, I'll give props where it's due. I think that the forum that they did have, it did have was, was very fair. Yeah. Um, I didn't see any questions that were completely outside the realm of like, you know, askable, legit questions. Uh, they didn't Venezuela him to death, which I thought was like refreshing and uh, kind of shocking. Like yeah. I was like, that is yeah. watching. A I was yeah, I was expecting like Fox like News. twenty questions about socialism. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like socialism over and over and over again, like nonstop. But uh, no, I don't think there was there any questions about Venezuela. 
I don't remember hearing, like, I just watched it, like, again today, and I don't remember hearing them talk about Venezuela once. There was one, there was one woman who asked uh, how Sanders would defend socialism, like, against, like, the, you know, the critics mm-hmm. um, who say that he's too far left. Um, basically, he just went into his, you know, normal spiel about what democratic socialism means to him, you know, creating a more equal and just society, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I thought... I thought it was. I thought. I, I thought he was a, like a little bit dodgy on some of the questions. Yeah, like, especially like his, the more left, like the the Elon Omar and like some of the immigration. Yeah, he did stuff. kind of walk back, like or try to distance distance himself a bit from her. Yeah, I was hoping he like because uh, Brett Bar said like you know you and your good friend uh, Elon Omar. Mm. Uh, I kind of wish he was just been like, yeah, just like, you know, let him, let him throw it at you. Like, mm-hmm. who, who, you know, and there's no harm in, in, in allowing that to happen. But I mean, there is like some credence that I think like a lot of people have this like perception that uh, Bernie has uh, been BFFs with all of these new incoming freshmen um, for a long time. And that's not really the case. Yeah. As much as we wish that they were oh, all yeah, part no, of like right. this best this friend super club. This sort of like recruitment that he went out to the streets and found these people. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of how they think it went. That yeah. he just sat in a room and he picked like all the brown people that he could find and he was like you guys are gonna you're gonna be sitting in congress one day well aoc <laughs> and i believe Ilan omar were, re- were recruited by justice democrats weren't they yeah uh, yeah correct they're both yeah uh, and is sanders involved with them um no no yeah it's a, it's a so. shoot off from uh, brand new congress and uh, tyt mm-hmm. so um, so I mean it's movement related, but uh, I think that's like uh, the failure uh, on their part to realize that this is like an actual movement. Like it's not, you know, Senator Sanders is a part of it, but it's uh, much broader and much bigger than that. So mm-hmm. yeah, there were a couple questions where uh, he kind of he sort of dodged, but like I think he did that dodged well and fairly. Like where they asked him, "Do you think that Joe Biden is a progressive?" Mm-hmm. I would have loved to hear him say, fuck no. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Like, <laughs> but he said, you know, I, I've known Joe for a long time and, you know, I consider him a friend and we're just going to put out our ideas and our policies and let the people decide. Yeah, which is like, you know, like I always want Bernie to be super snarky and I think that's why I like uh, Mike Ravel so much is because he's like what I want Bernie to be. But, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Bernie will always keep it classy. Like, it's just his style and uh, I'm cool with it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And like, well, they also asked, like, is there... Like, is there any one candidate that you're uh, particularly challenged by or afraid of or think that you're going to have to beat? And he basically said, I have no idea. Yeah. We're just He's not the taking anything for granted, which is absolutely what everyone should be doing right now. Because, I mean, it is still a very long ways from Election Day. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, it is kind of a trade-off for him in that, like, he, he now is in this, like like very strong position he's now ba- he's basically number one in the race yeah he's front runner i mean yeah Joe Biden's the, not in yet so he's yeah. all he is the front runner i mean most most media outlets are referring to him as a front runner but he is literally the front runner right mm-hmm. now which is great for him but also it p- paints a huge target on his back oh yeah i mean we and we've seen that with every other candidate that's kind of come out and had their, their uh 15 minutes of fame for a second they uh have all had their moment where they were a target and had been coming after um, Pete, Beto, Kamala. All of them have had their uh, moments, and uh, <laughs> Bernie is uh, definitely going to get his from the media. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's been the one to beat, like not just the front runner, but idealistically, he's been the one to beat since 2016. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, this is this is a little off topic, but I just wanted to mention this because you had mentioned uh, Mike Ravel. Uh, he put out a statement last night. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh my God! This is so regarding great. the 44th anniversary of the Cambodian genocide and the legacy of of Henry Kissinger. Oh. Uh, I just wanted to read the last two paragraphs because they're so good. Uh, when we talk about Kissinger, we must confront the fact that, while looming large, he is merely one cog in the American war machine. We must beware the other Kissingers, the ones whose names and faces yet to stain our history books, the men and women w waiting patiently for their turn to whisper death in the ears of our leaders. Some of them are already there, and we, the people, have a duty to shout back, peace. We may never see Henry Kissinger extradited to The Hague, so let us rebel by doing what he despises most, to band together, to unite under one wish, his speedy extradition to hell. Wow. I am so politically wet right now. <laughs> He's always... I feel like I haven't seen a tweet yet from Mike Ravel that I haven't been absolutely just, like, ecstatic about. Yeah. Everything he says from that to um, making the man who threw the shoe at George W. Bush um, an honorary American citizen. Like, <laughs> everything he posts is just gold. And it's I, just I basically, all on point. Yeah, I mean, there might be out there that I'd be like, oh, I don't know, Mikey. I don't know if I agree with that. But it hasn't happened so far. There was one poll recently that showed him polling at 1%, which is still 1% more than Kirsten Gillibrand. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, honestly, it's more... I, for him to even be pulling it all when, like, I feel like most people had no idea who this man even was. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of him until, like, a month ago. Mm -hmm. yeah. Ever. Yeah. I'd never heard of this man. Hidden gem for sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, uh, the last news segment we're covering has to do with abortion rights. There are a few states across uh, the country passing uh, and trying to pass very restrictive impunitive laws that pose a grave threat to women everywhere. Uh, Ohio just became the third state this year to pass what's being called a heartbeat bill, which bans abortion as early as six weeks into a pregnancy. Republicans in Tennessee recently tried to tried and failed to enact a similar bill, but are now refocusing their efforts on a trigger bill that would ban abortions in Tennessee should the Supreme Court alter or overturn Roe v. Wade. And Texas lawmakers are considering a bill that could open up the possibility of prosecutors charging a woman who has an abortion with criminal homicide, which can be punishable by the death penalty under current Texas law. So lots of fucked up legislation designed to strip women of their autonomy. But in good news, abortion globally seems to be more favorable. Mm -hmm. In South Korea, the 66-year abortion ban was uh, finally uh, lifted. Yeah. So by 2020, they're going to the Supreme Court um, of South Korea will have to overturn that ban. Um, they had tried to do this a few years ago, but they did not have enough justices. So mm. they were deadlocked and it was four to four. So they finally had enough justices to go ahead um, and get this overturned. Um it's been overwhelmingly positive, like abortion. It seems to be a small kind of, well, not a small minority, but it's a fairly small minority in uh, South Korea that is uh, overtly religious. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these groups in South Korea that have been um, trying to uh, maintain the illegality of like reproductive justice and stuff like that, they are actually 
in like cahoots and cahoots, excuse me, with American right to life and pro-life organizations. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them are modeled after or they've taken the lead of them. I know that South Korea just had um, a March for Life, which is modeled Mm -hmm. after. Yeah, which is modeled after what they have um, here. Uh, But unfortunately, a lot of. 20% 20% of women that were, at least that were asked in a survey recently, um, 20, 20% of women in South Korea have still gone out to get illegal abortions. Mm-hmm. The abortions are incredibly unsafe because, as you can imagine, with 66 years of these bans, um, the practice procedures that go into abortions are very antiquated. Sure. So we're talking about like abortion techniques in some places that they ha- that haven't been used since you know what the 50s 50s. 60s yeah um and a lot of times a woman will go in and she'll ask a doctor he'll say yes you can you know you could come in and we'll get the abortion and you know there's a there's a rest period uh after you get the abortion Mm -hmm. you kind of just sit there you rest you're really groggy you've been given a lot of medicine you're in pain you're bleeding um most of these women are i mean they're kicked right out the door afterwards because it's just so unsafe for them and it's unsafe for the doctors because um doctors also face uh charges there so this has all been overturned now um i think it's by december 31st of 2020 and it will be like the rule um the law of the land in south korea and a lot of people are really excited about it so that's like really good news for south korea unfortunately well i was gonna say you know it's it is uh it is really good news but it's also sort of bittersweet for me because you know i uh for people who don't know i am korean i was born in seoul um, and had this ban been lifted 25 years ago, I may have, uh, may have been spared from, from, uh, having to exist. Uh, wow. That's disappointing. <laughs> I had to turn there. I hate when you make this joke. Don't, Ben makes this joke a lot. And sometimes it's the opposite. And sometimes he's like, I'm just thankful that my mother didn't. <laughs> yeah, I've seen him do this to people for the reaction. <laughs> I think that's like a like uh I think everyone expects though like um the idea that like if your mother like uh thought about an abortion with you like that's like some kind of like super like bad taboo thing but like my mom was honest with me she had me at like 15 uh she thought about an abortion like it was absolutely on the table as yeah. like a thought and like you know like looking back like you'd be like oh mom why would you why would you ever think that like <laughs> no it's like you have to like think about it from like you know every woman's oh, perspective 15 year old a 15 year old girl yeah. like, i couldn't even imagine having a kid at 15 i would oof. yeah i mean i i know my mom said this she had like an abortion i feel like most of my friends they were all like close to abortion <laughs> stories because <laughs> i know my mom said she told her friends that she was pregnant they were like well girl we can get in the car now we can take you we'll take you to my marriage you know my mom was like no i think you know i think i'm gonna just like see the pregnancy through and they were like okay and 25 years later she's been stuck with me <laughs> but yeah so now when uh now very unfortunately um ohio passed the heartbeat bill, and of course, um, opposition to this. They're already they're already saddled up, and they're ready to fight this in court. Um, but it is, you know, what Ohio wanted. If they could get enough states to pass these heartbeat bills, um, goes the Supreme Court. They, yep, it goes they to the Supreme Court, and that's exactly what they want. So um, the legislation is pending in eleven other states. Um, Michigan doesn't have a heartbeat bill legislation passed. Out west, it's there's barely any. Even in like Idaho, in Colorado, you see it. In Texas, there's a heartbeat bill pending. Florida, we, we Louisiana. Don't, but um, I, I believe on the books we do have an abortion ban. 
That's like a hundred plus years old. It's yeah, never it's been, never, and if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, it will, then it will go into effect. Oh, However, so we already have a sort of trigger bill then. Yeah, yeah, sort of trigger law. The trigger, but yeah. Our attorney general, Dana Nessel, has said she will not be prosecuting people for any of this. Which yep, is, women or doctors. Women or doctors. Women or doctors. Which is great. Uh, yeah, so the, the, the trigger bill that we have basically is, I, I, honestly, it's probably never been tweaked with so that this, you know, in the case that it would happen. They, yeah. yeah, it hasn't been modernized since, I think, 1933. I mean, it is old as shit. And it has, like, I think maybe one exception like where the mother's Like, you weren't like, allowed to spit on the ground either in front of a woman. Like, that yeah. used to be illegal. <laughs> yeah, like, um, black people can vote then, also. Right. So, it's, you know, one of those things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty scary. Uh, scariest that, you know, we're seeing is in Texas. I mean, Texas is constantly... Um, trying to fight reproductive justice so they have this law now where it would not only it would be a felony but it would be a, fel- a felony that would carry the death penalty yeah, fighting the right to life m- movement fighting abortion with a death penalty is just like the most like ridiculous damn thing and it just goes to show like it has nothing to do with life and it has yeah, everything right. to do with controlling bodies and controlling right. women specifically, women specifically yeah. yeah like very specifically it's just that we um there's that that uh desire to maintain control and power over our over women's bodies and i think that it is very scary for um men to think that their wives could go out and do this or their mistresses um so yeah it's pretty scary it's it's frustrating because like you said it, it's just to maintain that um control over women i mean the um Demo- democratic lawmakers in um ohio they also tried uh Okay, if you're going to push a heartbeat bill, are we going to get more paid maternity leave for mothers? Are we going to be... And no, um, Governor DeWine, uh, he wouldn't pass it. Of course So, not. you know, we're... How important is life at six weeks? Yeah, they like to complain about single mothers, but uh, they have uh, no problem yeah. creating, you know, so many, so many, and it's 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 really unfortunate. I mean, mm-hmm. I was reading a system. Well, they, like, they... Uh, create all these single mothers and then demonize them for needing public assistance. Yeah. And then also won't teach their children about adequate birth control and, Mm -hmm. like, other things that they can do. So if they don't want to be abstinent, then they can go out and fuck like rabbits and not reproduce like them. Um, But unfortunately, people are just very afraid of their own sexuality and thus Mm -hmm. afraid of other people's sexuality. Mm -hmm. So it's easier to pretend that it doesn't happen and then demonize it when it does. And I think not just demonize, but like we criminalize the poor and then that just creates a system where there's a cycle where it's just going to keep continuing on and on into Mm -hmm. the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. Because people don't have adequate resources. And and specifically like marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, <clears throat> black women, um, Mexican women, undocumented, you know, like families and stuff like that, they're not going to be able to use those resources. But as we know, like, uh, you know, richer white families or higher caste families, they've always been able to afford that since mm-hmm. uh, since Carter, you know, since the time yeah. of Carter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, those, uh, since the time of, I think it was the Hyde Amendment we were talking about yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and that, that essentially, so the Hyde Amendment, uh, basically, I forget where exactly it was attached to, uh, but what it says is that abortions on, in Medicaid, if you have Medicaid, abortions are not covered unless it's, like, basically a threat to your life, or I think in circumstances of rape, you could make a case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, but I think but it's, really it's, hard to actually... it's been, like, a handful of people who have even been able to walk around that. I mean, literally, right. like, I think I read that it was, like, six people. Yeah, it's... Literally right. no, six it's, people. It's, like, nobody gets, like, nobody gets that. Recent, like, and, like, you can't just yeah, scrape yeah. up $500, like... 
that's a lot of money to get a, to get together before like a time frame where it turns into a second trimester, especially with the waiting periods. So I know in Michigan right. it's only it's you know I say only twenty uh, twenty four hours. I only had to wait twenty four hours to get my abortions, but. When you have morning sickness and you know this isn't what you want to do, that 24 hours, just it's a sleepless night waiting mm-hmm. to go get that abortion. Mm-hmm. And it, some places it's even longer. It's like, even, yeah. I mean, it can be three, I think it's three days in some places. And I know when I went to get my first abortion there, they were, they were kids, you know, they were about 18 years old, but I want to say they were still in high school. And they came up to Ann Arbor to get their abortion from Toledo, Ohio. And I think that we're going to be seeing a lot of that more, or we're going to just be seeing a lot of people, um, getting wrong dosages when they're ordering mifepristone online, which is the abortion uh, pill. It's already happening in, in Texas. Women are overdosing or they're underdosing, and then their children are having, they have to give birth to these babies because it didn't, you know, work. And then it's a whole other crisis on their hands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, they'd rather see that happen. <laughs> they'd rather see women dead or they'd rather see these fetuses born um, rather than women giving the, getting the choice over their own autonomy. Yeah, and so many of them are hypocrites, too. They're completely against abortion until their mistress needs one. And yeah, yeah. They're all or their daughters. It. Or their daughters, yeah. Until right. somebody they know personally needs one, and then all of a sudden, like, free game, but, like, other people know. And it's just, like, that idea that, like, Republicans kind of always have that, like, you know, it's, like, only welfare benefits for our people are only, you know, and it's not like just yeah. this idea that, like... Not just Republicans. Not just Republicans. Just gonna throw that... Like, the Jimmy Carter said, I think, when it was... <clears throat> was asked by a reporter and he said there are many things in life that are that not fair, fair that wealthy people can afford and the poor people can't yeah right yeah. And, and, that's that's in regards, and that was in regard specifically to abortion right so like yeah. that's and that's that is the president that nowadays people are like oh Jimmy Carter solar panels on the White House you <laughs> know like fuck women's Peanut autonomy peanuts. yeah <laughs> right. but, yeah and we'll give them peanuts and what's amazing is that the the <laughs> law specifically that he was like talking about that he uh, enacted I can't remember what it if, they, if it was the Hyde Amendment mm-hmm. um, no, that was, he was that was him Ford both terms I think it was or uh, however long he was in yeah. he was like no I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass the Hyde Amendment. And then Carter came in. He was like, "I'll do it." And yeah, there was like no that, pressure to do pattern, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a pattern with like that I see with Democratic politicians. Is Republicans are like, "No, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We're going to get so much flack if we do it." And mm-hmm. then Democrats come in and they're like, "We've solved the problem." Yeah, like prison industrial complex. I'm Bill Clinton. I yeah. solved the problem. Yeah, no one was asking you for that. No one. <laughs> there was, like you said, there was no pressure. Right. No one was like, Except, oh, hey, you're in. Like, would you want to do this? Yeah, I mean, the Hyde Amendment, they did, like, there was polling done, like, around the time, and it was just massively unpopular. Everyone was like, no, what are you, are you, are you kidding me? And now that it's been such a precedent for so long, um, the idea is, like, actually scary to people again because we aren't used to it you know it's kind of like right. a, like the assault weapons ban you know, a lot of people forget that we had one for 14 years and, right you know mm-hmm. we lived we're fine or, you know and it was good but uh and survived not mm-hmm. everyone did yeah you know like not everyone has since you know it's been repealed it's and not everyone is going to survive an abortion ban mm-hmm. not in ohio not in louisiana mm-hmm. and texas there are people that are not going to survive it they're just not and it's really scary and it's really sad but i guess you know women are still technically just not as important. No. Incubators, as it were. Yep, incubators. Yeah, so um, one of the, um, kind of uh, to leap off into our next subject, one of the things that we can do to fix that is uh, adopting Medicare for all. That's right. Yay, snap, 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 snap. Yeah, I was, I was going to say we are in a pretty tight schedule here. So uh, to uh, <laughs> sort of, sort of uh, move on, 
uh, to the main focus of today's show. Uh, we're talking about Medicare for All and the fight to guarantee health care as a human right to everyone in the United States. So to open up this topic, I thought we'd talk about Senator Sanders' new Medicare for All bill, uh, which is the third iteration of a bill Sanders originally introduced in 2013. And while the core essence of the bill has remained the same, this 2019 version is the most comprehensive to date. Yeah, I think uh, that was largely due to the uh, House. The House bill. Uh, the uh, House bill. Put uh, out by Pramila Jayapal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which um, went far beyond Sanders, and I think he... Um, in part because of the momentum that we've had on the bill, we we're, we're able to um, ask for more and articulate a broader vision for Medicare for All. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of like as a result of moving the overtime window left on the issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to that issue of abortion, you know, this one of the things that has never changed about this bill and has been in since day one is uh, getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. And yeah. um, that would be huge. And, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, the people that are denied on Medicaid. And it's, it's one in four women. Um, that are denied an abortion that they want um, because they simply can't afford it. So, I mean, changing one in four women's lives would be huge. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but there's like a number of differences, obviously, uh, going beyond that. Uh, long-term care was one of the, probably the biggest uh, changes to the bill um, just because of its uh, extreme cost, but also because like, um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, the majority of our healthcare expenses um, only come from 5% of the population. And uh, a lot of those people fall into that pool of long-term care patients mm-hmm. um, just because it's extremely expensive if you have um, certain disabilities or uh, long-term care needs like mm-hmm. uh, the elderly needs. So. And if you think about that in a family setting, who is the one who ends up taking care of that person is generally a woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then yeah. that's like talking about unpaid labor. Yeah. Like. yeah. <laughs> Which is really crazy because the state will actually pay um, to have somebody come in from an outside um, like group or, or, or facility to take care of uh, your your own loved ones, but uh, they won't actually pay the family, which I find is ridiculous. Um, I don't see why the family shouldn't just as easily get paid if they're doing the work uh, necessary to take right. care of somebody. Because they're right there on the ground and they know what those people want and they need mm-hmm. much better than like bringing someone in and having to like go through a process. Yeah, yeah. Especially if they're willing to. Also, I think we should definitely be cultivating those family connections because mm-hmm. like a lot of times in our society is really isolating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, one, one of the things that uh, you had mentioned last night, I, I, is it a new addition uh, to the bill uh, for prescription drugs? Because I believe in a previous version or maybe uh, the last version – of Sanders bill, uh, there was like a $250 deductible. Yeah. So basically, um, you would have to pay for the first $250 worth of prescription drugs that you'd buy. Um, but that has since been scrapped and now it will be completely no deductibles, no copays, no premiums whatsoever. Deductibles. Yes. Which is absolutely beautiful. There's no way that uh, people should be paying a premium, um, to have access to healthcare. And yeah. then when they actually need it, still continue to have to pay money. And then, you know, it's just like, they just like nickel and dime people to death like every moment they get you think you're like covered and then you go in and it's like nope yeah and i think that's also frustrating is like um you know i took econ in high school um and we didn't learn fuck all about this type of shit like i didn't understand what did like my mom would say the word deductible to me or like my mother-in-law would say the word deductible and i just 
like 21 years old and I'm like, I have no fucking idea what you guys are talking about. And I had the distinct privilege to be covered with some really good insurance by my mother. And that runs out in December. Mm -hmm. So like, it is really important to me that this happens because I am fucking basically helpless (laughs) when it comes to like knowing what I need for myself almost. Mm -hmm. Um, Not necessarily like I don't know, you know, what my body needs or whatever, but like, I just navigate it. It's like Greek to me. It's Greek to me when I'm looking at that. I don't know how to navigate the system. I don't know how to read it on my own. When I look on the internet, like it's basically healthcare for dummies. Yeah, it's what I need to do. And I know I can't. I I know I can't be alone with that. Like, I just signed up through Medicaid through Michigan. Yeah. And it was, like, a process. And I felt like I was doing it wrong the whole time. Yeah. And then they were like, here's some health care. And I was like, sweet. I'm still a student. What happens when that runs out? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, why the, that's why bills like this are so important is because, like, not, not only do they, you know, provide comprehensive care, but they also, like, you know, uh, streamline and uh, simplify the system that makes it more effective. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I, I like to think of myself as like not that stupid, but I feel <laughs> like this is a topic where like I do feel like very stupid. It's like this in like calculus, the taxes, and like right. physics class, <laughs> and yeah, in taxes, in taxes. Yeah, I, I used absolutely. to get in big fights with my parents. Like, you got to do this. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And if you don't understand like, it, then you're just really, you know, right. you're not gonna go for and it. That's the thing that like the government has the number that like you owe them and they're like hey okay figure it out (laughs) and then if you get it wrong we're sending you to jail yeah which is like (laughs) but also like another thing with healthcare is it it, the level of stability that streamlining the system would give Mm -hmm. people to their lives it would be astronomical yeah Yeah. i mean i know plenty of people that um you know like they're later in their life uh you know they've they've gotten a decent amount of savings and they'd love to start a small business or do something like that but they literally just can't risk losing their health care that's tied to their current employer Mm -hmm. so like it's it's you know like um i've heard the argument and i really like the argument uh, appealing to republicans um Medicare for all grants freedom. It allows you the freedom to go to any doctor you want. It allows the freedom to leave your job if you want. Go to another state if you want. It allows you the freedom to pursue things in your life that you normally wouldn't if you were tied down to your employer. And it also just gives you that, like, relief that you know when your kids, you know, when they finally jump out of the nest, that they're going to be covered if they literally jump out of the nest and hurt (laughs) themselves. (laughs) They're going to be, you know, covered when they're getting into mishaps and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know, it always blows my mind that America is still having this fucking conversation. It blows my mind. Well, I think uh, our, our guest today might be, able, may, might be able to help us out. So to talk more about Medicare for All, we're going to be joined by Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. He is a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, and progressive activist. He served as the health commissioner in the city of Detroit. He was a professor at Columbia University's Department of Epidemiology, where he became an internationally recognized expert in health policy and health inequalities. But most of you will probably remember him from his 2018 run for governor of Michigan, where he ran as an unapologetic progressive and earned the endorsements of Senator Bernie Sanders and Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. We are joined now by Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Abdul, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you here. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, just to get things started, back in February this year, you wrote a piece for Current Affairs called Don't Let Medicare for All Be Rebranded, where you talked about plans being put forth that sound like Medicare for All but aren't actually. So define what Medicare for All actually is and why that definition is important in the midst of these similarly named proposals. The idea behind Medicare for All goes back to a policy term that's a little bit jargony, which is single-payer health care. Let me explain what that means. Um, in a traditional market, which is what a lot of Republicans want to think healthcare is, uh, you come to the market to buy some good. Let's just say that you're in the market for llamas, right? You want a really furry llama, and you want a brown llama, and you want a llama with a nice face. Uh, and you take your money, you go to the seller of llamas, and you say, I would like to buy this llama. And they said, well, look, this llama, this particular nice-faced brown llama, it's going to cost you 100 bucks. You say, well, no, no, that's too expensive because there's another guy over there that, uh, that's selling the same llama for 65 And then soon enough, you go to those other places and you say, well, look, I, um, I would like to buy this particular kind of llama. And they're like, okay, 65 it is. If you were to go back to that other guy and you have a credible offer of 65 you're going to end up paying 65 And um, that's how markets work. They imply that we have a choice and um, that we can reject to buy a good if we feel like the market is charging us too much. That's how market capitalism is supposed to work, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of reasons why it doesn't work like that um, right now in America for a lot of goods. Uh, but let's talk in particular about healthcare. If I get sick right now, let's say I start clutching my chest in a universal sign of I'm having a heart attack, where are you going to take me? You're going to take me to the nearest hospital. You better take me to the nearest hospital. <laughs> Something bad really might happen to me, right? Right. I have no choice in the matter. Not only that, assume I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about what's happening to me. And a doctor who is credible says, uh, dear sir, you are going to need to get what is in effect a Roto-Rooter for your heart. I'm not going to say, actually, I don't know that I agree with that. I'm going to say, okay, Roto-Root my heart because I don't want to die, <laughs> right? And so you see where the choice goes away entirely. Now, who pays for that? And this is what we're getting to. I don't pay for that. I'm not sitting around with a bunch of money in my pocket being like, hmm, I wonder what doctor is going to charge me $65 versus $100. I do exactly what the doctor tells me I need to do. I do it at the place that you take me because time is of the essence. And usually there aren't that many hospitals I can choose from anyway. I wish I could say, well, I'm going to choose this hospital over that hospital because their readmission rates are lower and I'd much rather get care at this particular place. That's not how it works. Mm -hmm. And the people who pay for my health care, in my case, I am insured via a private health insurance company that my wife gets through her work. That means they are the payer. That's what a payer is in healthcare. It usually is the, the entity that is going to pay for care. If you are uh, earning below a certain amount in this country, that's going to be Medicaid. If you are over 65 or have a particular set of disabilities, that's going to be Medicare. But for most other people, that's going to be some private health insurer. When we talk about single payer, what we mean is that there's one entity that pays for all of the care. And the reason that matters is because there is no market for healthcare. And right now we have these private insurers and these private hospitals that can sit there and collude with each other about the prices that in effect we all have to end up paying in some form or another, whether it's taxpayer dollars or it's things like premiums and co-pays and deductibles to insurance companies for the care that we get. So single payer healthcare is the sine qua non of what we talk about when we say Medicare for all. It has to be one single payer. It has to be funded 
uh, and in part operated by the government. It is not a system where we rely uh, in any way on a private health insurance market. All right. So that's not a public option. That's, that's not a public that's option. That's not a buy-in. That's not a buy-in, right? A public option is, is a buy-in. A public option is basically saying that um, beyond Medicare and Medicaid, that there would be some government health insurance system that you could buy into, that you could choose, right? Um, and then the other options on the table that people are talking about are just uh, bringing the, the age at which you, you earn Medicare coverage down to maybe 50 or 55. Um, all of these do not do away with the really problematic structure of private health insurance as a necessary for care in this country. That's the problem that we have right now. That's why our healthcare is so expensive. That's why so few people have it. So just kind of uh, go on with your um, analogy here. Um, you know, a lot of people want the brown llama, but uh, their network only accepts white llamas. And uh, so that's a real problem. And I, I, I like the idea of phrasing um, Medicare for all as like a freedom advancing um, bill, because it really does. It, it decouples you from your employer. It um, you know, allows you to choose any doctor you want. Uh, so, uh, what what are your opinions like on like? I mean, obviously, <clears throat> these other plans aren't going to necessarily have that same caveat. I'm imagining. I'm imagining like the public option doesn't necessarily allow you to go uh, to all doctors. It's kind of whoever accepts it, like uh, Medicaid and Medicare. So, um, maybe you could uh, provide more on that. Yeah. So the the challenge with um, with the way it stands right now, and I just want to be clear. 65% of all healthcare is paid for by the government. That's something we all should understand. And if you just map that to, to GDP in this country, we spend about 19 cents on the dollar for every dollar spent in the country on healthcare. If you take 65% of that, you're talking about 11% of GDP that is paid for by the government for healthcare, which, by the way, is the same thing that Canada's government pays. And so we're already doing at baseline what Canada's doing, but then you have to ask, well, why are we getting so much less healthcare for it? And that's because right now we've got a system whereby you've got these insurers, you've got these healthcare providers, and they're colluding. What does that then mean? That means that at some point, if you're a beneficiary of a particular kind of insurance, right, those doctors may not take that insurance because they didn't come together and get into a back room and make a deal, right? Um, and that's the problem. And then the, 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 the challenge that we have right now with uh, with, with, with public programs is that they're always seen as less than because we've got these private systems that richer people buy into, which then means that uh, it's left to cover those folks with the, less vo the least voice in our uh, democracy, the least voice in our economics. And so, yes, that public option would probably not include every doctor because every doctor wouldn't have to take it. Whereas in Medicare for all, when you're talking about a system that's covering 95, 100% of lives, if you're a doctor and you don't take it, you're just you're just out of business, right? Mm -hmm. right. So it forces every provider into that system. Mm -hmm. That's a, a pretty good point, um, I think. And uh, you know, <clears throat> well, one of the things that uh, you know you're kind of going on to is that 65% of the people are already covered um, under this system, and it just seems that like any tinkering to try to like not fully get there is just like another half measure that's. Um, Obviously, like, you know, probably brought to you by your <laughs> biggest health insurers in the country. I know, uh, for instance, like uh, there's been you know a lot of attacks against us uh, recently, um, at, like from uh, United Healthcare and uh, some of the biggest insurers. So there's a there is a uh, junta called the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future that uh, has this you know fantastically blonde name. 
that really is a coalition of health insurers and pharma and the AMA, which is terrible on this issue, um, who have come together and frankly just committed to lobbying against Medicare for All. That's their entire goal. And um, they command an inordinate amount of power because, well, you know, we have a system whereby we've uh, we've said that corporations are people too, uh, to the detriment of basic human rights for actual people, and um, and that's what's what's happening right now. And so they're spending a ton of money lobbying the people that they've already bought off through campaign contributions, uh, and we're seeing that happen across the board. I mean, in this state alone. Um, Seventy percent of private health care is, is provided by Blue Cross Blue Shield. Their CEO made 19 million bucks last year. It's like a seven million increase from the year before, right? I'm I mean, mistaken. that's like you, you. You would imagine our state would be just that much healthier because that he has done, right? He must have earned that 19 million. It's not like he's you know sitting on top of the back of a corrupted healthcare system that is uh, that makes its money in effect trying to exclude people who cost the system a lot of money. Well, they did defeat you, so. Well, you know, it's true. Not, not enough people wanted the brown mama. That's the problem. Well, speaking, uh, speaking of CEOs, uh, earlier this week, uh, David Wickman, the CEO of United Health Group, the largest health insurance company in the country, said that, quote, Medicare for all proposals pushed by Democratic lawmakers and presidential candidates would, quote, destabilize the nation's health system. What are your thoughts on that? It's like a... I, mean, I don't even know understand what that means. Like, destabilize <laughs> the nation. Yes, if you assume yourself to be the nation's health system... And these policies would legislate your greedy ass out of existence, then maybe that means that that the system would be destabilized. Mm-hmm. Um, a system right now that excludes one in ten Americans from getting health care is already pretty unstable. Yeah, I don't. I, you know, if that's the instability that they're so worried about, you know, bring it on and then we'll stabilize it in a system that actually includes everybody, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and the, the, the 19 cents on the dollar we pay, we could bring that down. Uh, and the 19 million that their CEOs make, we can bring that down to just about zero too. I'm, I'm happy with that. Well, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, we, I, I think we want to go further than just destabilize the current system. I think we kind of want to annihilate it and build something even better. Deconstruct to reconstruct. Yeah. To use philosophical terms that um, some people really don't like. And, you know, the fact of the matter is once we pass Medicare for all, there is a clear approach to uh, addressing the quote-unquote instability. You know, that right now we have a, a system that is built around figuring out how to profiteer off of sick people. The entire subtext of that system has to change. And, um, you know, I saw it firsthand when I was training in medical school, what what this system does uh, to to patients and providers alike. And, um, you know, it's inhumane. And the point of providing people health care was never about figuring out how you can um, make sure that certain CEOs are making 19 million bucks a year. Unfortunately, that's what the goal of this partnership has become. It's how do we sustain that level of earnings, that level of greed uh, in that system. And, you know, we've got to decide that we are going to do the morally correct thing. Um, this is a moral choice. Uh, you know, it, people like to, the unfortunate reality of, of talking about numbers and talking about dollars and is that you, you assent to the logic that says that it's the numbers and the dollars that matter the most. Mm-hmm. Every one of those 30 million people has a story. Every one of those people can tell you how much fear they walk around with if something bad were to happen, how much anxiety their family has to sustain because of it, what it would mean to them to be bankrupted because 
because they did something as simple as get healthcare in the richest, most powerful country in the world? Like, this is a moral question. Um, and, you know, I, I almost, to me, when we talk about this politically, I almost you know, put that put that other stuff aside. They, they're going to try and introduce these numbers to make this sort of off-the-cuff argument that, well, see, it's not sustainable because uh, a bunch of people who are speaking language that's too opaque to understand say it's not. That's totally sustainable. The question is whether or not um, the system as it stands is morally sustainable. Uh, and, and I think we've answered that question a long time ago. Now, the question becomes, are we willing to have the political courage as a society uh, to stand up for what is right? And um, and that's a choice we all get to make every you know two to four years. And uh, I hope we make the right choice. Absolutely. <clears throat> the winds are definitely at our back, it feels like. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if you uh, watched the uh, town hall on Monday with uh, Senator Sanders, but uh, that response in a Republican-filled room was all the evidence you need that this isn't a uh, fringe idea yeah. by any uh, stretch of the imagination. People, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, particularly in our generation, um, recognize that the system's just not working, and uh, and so I think they're they're done, right? I mean, enough enough is enough, and um, you know, we've got a challenge right now because the people who are affected by this question, by definition, are under the age of sixty-five. Um, and the folks who've made it to 65, they've got Medicare. So, um, so you know, it is a generational question because it affects systematically those of us who are younger more. Um, the challenge is, is that how do we make sure that our generation realizes that, in fact, there are uh, credible wins and real change that is possible? Um, because, you know, all those other folks want to bore us out into oblivion and say, change is impossible. You will never get it. And um, you might as just, well, wait. Yeah, apathy is definitely one of their tools. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, obviously the you know the details of the policy are important, uh, but the politics of Medicare for all are also very important. So you know insurance companies and other special interests are obviously going to be pushing back with a lot of money, probably you know hundreds of millions of dollars in lots of propaganda. Um, what uh, do you, do you have any quick quick rebuttals you would offer to activists and citizens working to counter the opposition's narrative? So number one, it is a moral question, and we have to continue to ask the moral question, right? Number two, uh, our healthcare system as it stands delivers mediocre outcomes um, at the highest costs per capita in the world. What is unsustainable is this. Number three, the idea that people will lose their private health insurance and somehow that will keep them from supporting Medicare for all. Um, talk to the people who've actually ever had to use their private health insurance. People love their private health insurance until they have to use it. Mm -hmm. And then when they have to use it, they realize that they've been paying through the nose uh, every two weeks or every month, every time they get a paycheck. And then they've got to get on the phone to argue with some bureaucrat about why they should get access to the health care they already paid for. And then the minute they actually really use it at the doctor's office, they've got to pay a little bit more. And it doesn't even kick in until they've paid a certain deductible. Like the, the thing doesn't work for people. And all the profits that the health insurance industry make is about keeping us from getting the health care that we need. That's the facts. Um, and then lastly, the, 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 the clinician community, the, the provider community is starting to recognize that the greed in the current healthcare system is unsustainable. Um, you talk to any physician in our generation, uh, increasingly they have been colluded out of owning their own practices. They've been, in effect, forced into working for large consolidating health systems, and they've become like any other line worker. Um, and they are 
they're constantly working harder for less and less, uh, despite the fact that they're the ones who went to school, they're the ones who did all the work and memorized all the PowerPoint slides and, mm -hmm. you know, did all the, the, the education and paid all of that debt, right, um, that they're going to continue to have to pay off. And they're getting less of a slice of the pie because most of these health systems are now being run by greedy MBAs uh, who are figuring out how to take the cream off the top. And, um, and so we've got to continue to build our coalition and we've got to continue to, to tell these stories. Um, and then the last point is, is that they're going to continue to tell us that's impossible. That's, that's how they, that's how they take the wind out of your sails. And anything that's ever been uh, hard won doesn't come linearly. It's not like you're like, oh, okay, I'm 50% of the way there. No, now I'm 75% of the way there. It's not like getting to Chicago, right? Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you don't know that you're going to get there until you get there. And then all of a sudden it happens and it's there. And we've got to believe in that potential. Um, we're the only high income country in the world that does not uh, have a real government footprint in healthcare um, and does not guarantee <clears throat> our people access uh, to universal basic services. And we can do a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of a quote, which I'm, I think I have to paraphrase here that says that basically it's time it's time for our generation and our people to understand that uh, we need to become actors in the course of history and not just its passive victims. I love that. That's right. Um, so one of the other things that we wanted to ask you about, you know, there, there are, as you know, currently about 30 million Americans who are uninsured. Uh, some critics of Medicare for All say that they worry about understaffing caused by the sudden influx of new patients. So what do you think is the best way to ensure we have enough doctors and medical professionals to take care of newly covered patients? Well, um, so the average physician graduating medical school is graduating with over $100,000 in debt. Mm -hmm. Now, one great way to address that uh, would be to to make medical school debt-free and to make college debt-free. Yeah. Um, that would be one great way. Uh, number two, like, I, I want you to think about the perversity of that question. They're like, look, if we give all these other people <laughs> health care, then we're not going to have enough people to give them health care. So we just shouldn't give them health care. You're like, what the F? <laughs> right? How does that make any sense? Um, yeah, like, okay, so we're going to need to staff up. Of course. Let's do it. I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't understand how that's an argument against against including 30 million people into our healthcare system. I just don't. Yeah, I think um, one of the bigger arguments about that specifically is that people say in Canada, like you have to wait for oh yeah, long, so long. long. So, You're waiting yeah. for so long to see your doctor. Who knows? You might <laughs> die before you see them. But I mean, like you said, it's just make universal, make university accessible to everybody, right? I mean, I do think that also like implementing more STEM and STEAM um, strong schools would also help as far as like high schools, um, middle schools and in public schools generally that that would help? Or do you think that, uh, I guess maybe not Michigan specifically, but do you think that, that you see that uh, in the nation happening already? So, you know, unfortunately our, um, our outcomes, educational outcomes for young people, particularly in, uh, in science and math are stagnating, if not falling. Um, and we've got to do a much better job investing in education in K through 12, which is part of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, you've got to create a pipeline uh, at the back end. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the question about waiting, when you talk about lines in places like Canada, it's never for life-saving care. It's not like you get a heart attack and they're like, well, I'm sorry, there are four <laughs> people in front of you. So, well, good luck, right? right. It's right. for elective services. 
It's like based on need, if I'm, if I'm like correct. Exactly. Like, You'll never have to wait for care that you require in Canada. You might have to wait a little bit for care that you do not require that's elective. Um, but here's the thing. People are using that argument, right, about rationing when they're not appreciating that our system rations care anyway. Instead of rationing it based on what you need, when you need it, no matter who you are, it rations based on what you can afford which is the most unequal way of rationing. It's like, mm -hmm. well, if you can afford it, you get all the healthcare you need whenever you need it, which is, by the way, bullshit, because at the end of the day, most of the time, there is a PPO or an HMO that's trying to figure out who you can see or can't see. So that's that, first. Second, at the end of the day, like the idea that somehow people should be able to get all the care they need when they need it, and then meanwhile, some group of people just doesn't have healthcare at all, that just does not seem... Yeah, I mean, those people are waiting for whatever. I mean, yeah. they don't ever, they don't get to see a line, let alone stand in one, you know, it's like, that's right. They never make it to the hospital to begin with. That's right. So, and then, and then the facts speak for themselves in Canada. They live on average two years longer than we do. Their infant mortality rates are lower than ours are. Uh, and they are happier with their healthcare system. So, yeah. you know, assuming Canadians have similar, um, physiology to us, which I think <laughs> is a fair assumption, uh, then arguably if we did what Canada did, we would have similar outcomes too. Mm -hmm. Um, that being said, Canadians are just so nice. I don't know what that is. I think that, that may stem from a, a certain new lobe in their liver. Um, <laughs> uh, so maybe scientific evidence coming out right now. I'm just saying, I can see Canada from my house. So, <laughs> you know, even, even Jim Carrey, uh, in an interview, I think it was like Bill Maher or something, he said, uh, "Yeah, we have we have universal health care in Canada because we actually give a fuck about our people." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's astonishing that people think that um, universal health care would be un-American. As if, like, you know, dying of cancer is just as American <laughs> as it gets, you know, just suffering through, you know, tooth injuries because you can't afford that root canal. That's just as American as it gets. It's good old Midwest history. Americana. Or there's this, you know, garbage bootstraps model, right? Mm -hmm. There's like, well, you know, oh, yeah, people that's... have to work for their health care. Like, really? Like, what about, like, so So if a kid gets cancer, you're like, well, listen, you haven't put in your time, so <laughs> we can't get treat your cancer. Lemonade stand. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know exactly. that it's... 25 cents a cup. <laughs> you might raise those prices. And Permit out. Patty is going to call the cops on you because you don't have that permit to oh, be selling. Right. Those are the worst. Because you do, you do see those stories. It's like, um, it's like, uh, like, uh... A fake feel good. Yeah, a fake feel good. It's like, uh, you know, local robotics team raises uh, money to provide for a kid with disabilities. And it's just like, you know, it's like these stories that are like, that prop up like charity, which don't get me wrong, the charity is absolutely beautiful. But like, we should be doing this as a collective. Yeah. There shouldn't be those stories. Like, it shouldn't Nobody be, should be the left need out. It's a for unique. a charity. Like, there shouldn't be a child that needs something so bad that a high school team has to make something for them. Yeah, yeah it's, I think like, that the, it is unique to the United States, too. There is nowhere else where you would have to do that so that someone can get the care that they need, especially a child. The other way to tell that story is local government fails person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And children decide to step in. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> <laughs> a good alternative headline for sure. Did you guys have any other questions? You know, I do have a question. So before you had came in, we had um, briefly talked about um, how sometimes navigating healthcare can be kind of confusing for people, especially if they go to school and it wasn't covered. Um, how could you explain something like deductibles, um, which is, you know, a big thing that people are talking about. You won't have the deductibles under Medicare for All. And what was the 
Copay Copays premiums. and stuff yeah. in premiums. Yeah. How would you explain that? I mean, in like absolute layman's terms yeah. for people who might be listening and also me. No, I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> also, these names are awful. Like, there's nothing good about paying your insurance. Why is it called premium? <laughs> when I go to the store, I want premium ice cream. Does that mean I want to pay a premium for my insurance? I don't understand. Um, so when you pay a baseline rate per per month or per uh, two weeks, um, usually if you're employed and, and you get that benefit, it comes out of your uh, paycheck. On the other side of that, there's also your employer paying into your insurance. The part that you pay is what's called a premium. And you're paying some proportion of the baseline cost of your insurance. That's the premium side, right? Okay. Above and beyond what your employer also paid for you. Then there's some level that you have to pay before the insurance starts paying out. That's called a deductible. That one's interesting. I, I, I think <clears throat> I don't understand it because it just doesn't... Doesn't I make don't sense. understand. Yeah, it, doesn't it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I, yeah, I just... but, but they'll say, you, in, under your policy, th- this insurance doesn't kick in until you've paid $10,000 or you've paid $1,000 or you paid nothing, in which case you have zero deductible, right? Um, but that's the amount that you have to pay out of your pocket beyond the premium you already paid to have the insurance right. before that insurance benefit kicks in. And then... When you actually go to get your care at the point of care, you might have to pay 20 bucks or 10 bucks or 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. That's what's called a copay. Okay. There's also a version of a copay called coinsurance, which instead of paying a base flat rate, you're paying some proportion of the cost of that care. So it's a, it's a 20% coinsurance rate or okay. a 10% coinsurance rate. And if your care that day was 700 bucks, oh, wow. then you would be paying... 70 bucks for a 10% coinsurance or 140 bucks for a 20% coinsurance. So is this where you see like on the internet when a woman like goes in to maybe give birth and the ma- she gets that like maternity bill or whatever and you know they might charge her those additional things is uh, when you see bills where they get charged uh, like fifty dollars for skin to skin, holding her fucking yeah. baby, yeah, holding right. holding your baby for the benefits. Um, uh, would you that would it be like easy to assume that that might be that coinsurance where they can tack on they want to tack on as much as they possibly can, um, so that they can get the bigger chunk of that twenty percent or whatever. So that's part of it. the 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 other part of it is that the ways that prices are set are completely opaque. So one of the big benefits of Medicare for All is that it would just set the rate for the cost of a particular thing, right? No matter who the hospital is, the Medicare system under Medicare for All would be paying this much for this service, right? You go in and have an MRI, it's 300 bucks. It doesn't matter if you have it at, you know, Uncle Joe's Podunk MRI, or you have it at Sparrow, or you have it at Henry Ford, it's going to be 300 bucks, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The problem right now is that those rates get set behind closed doors between every insurance company and every health provider independently. So based on the way they package what care they get based on what they think is going to walk through the door based on what walked through the door last year, it may be that the Tylenol that they give you for an admission for congestive heart failure is 50 bucks. Makes no sense. Right. Because you could go and buy that Tylenol for for far cheaper, right? Um, So this is part of the problem is that nobody actually knows how the sausage is made. And that then allows 
the insurers and the providers to try and collude. Now, here here's the big the big the big get the big deal, right? Is that if you're an insurer, who's your competition? Another insurer. And so, if you can compete, uh, if you can compete with that other insurer by colluding with the provider to get a better deal than that other insurer, then you win. And so, it's not about what you do for patients. It's about how you outcompete at that negotiating table the other insurers. Does right, that make right. sense? Yep, that makes sense. And so mm-hmm. you're having this happen across the board, and it's the same way for health for, for, for providers. If you're the single provider in town, if you guys noticed, there's been a ton of consolidation in the system. What does that mean? That every hospital is buying every other hospital. So you might have had three hospitals in the Lansing area 20 years ago. Now you have one system. And the reason why is because they've used their ability to negotiate better rates with those insurers, right? to outcompete the others and then buy them. What that does is, in effect, create localized monopolies. But I'm sure they have some sort of language, so they're not a monopoly, right, I would assume? They're not a monopoly because they'll say, well, we're one of 15 health systems in the state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yes, but you're the only one in Lansing. You're the local right. monopoly. It refuses yeah. that. It goes back to that mm-hmm. thing about healthcare being local. Yep. Like, you don't drive three hours for your healthcare. That's right. So. so they're all local micro-monopolies, mm-hmm. and that is the biggest challenge. And so once you become even a micro oligopoly, right, you then can set prices in pretty damning ways. One of the worst things about what happened with the ACA is one of the goals that they had was that they wanted to reduce the amount of overhead that insurance companies charged. So they said, well, you're only going to be able to, we can can only keep 20% of the costs, right? And and, and these kinds of regulations were put on both the systems, the health systems, the, the providers, and the payers, the insurers. And so what happened was, if you know you're going to keep only 20%, increase the pie. Exactly. You just build the pie. So you're like, well, listen, fine, charge us whatever you want because 20% of a bigger number is a bigger number. And so it created this misincentive to actually increase the costs. Isn't there like an open, like kind of like a, uh, kind of like an, I heard like in the pricing too, it's like they have like a standard, it's called like, um, like, I, I'm paraphrasing, it's like closest reasonable price. Mm-hmm. So they look at like um, somewhat like what other doctors in the area charge. But so there's like an incentive to kind of, we could either all compete and lower our prices or we could work together and we all increase our prices and they're still considered to be reasonable because every doctor in the area charges That's right. this. That's right. And so, you know, the, the difference in healthcare, the reason our healthcare is, not, is so expensive is not because we use more <laughs> healthcare. It's because per unit our healthcare is more expensive because of all of this. Mm. And single pair would fix that. It would. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because because now what you're doing is saying you can't collude, right? There is no yeah. more uh there is no more capacity to get behind closed doors and set a price that outcompetes everybody else. Because at some point so so the way single payer works, you all know what a monopoly is, right? Everybody's yeah. yes. heard of a monopoly and a monopoly is, is the single seller of a good. Mm-hmm. If you're the single seller of a good, you can just set the price because there's nowhere else to buy the good, right? What single payer is is a government monopsony. A monopsony is when you're the only buyer of a good. And if you think about it, if you're the only buyer of a good, then at some point you also get to set the price, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. those sellers can't go anywhere else. They have to come yeah. to you to sell, right? Mm-hmm. And so what you're doing is you're saying the government is going to set, is going to become a monopsonist. And because government is us, right, then it's a rate that is set with our best interest in mind. That's what single payer does. That's the, that's the secret sauce. That's the reason why all of these other systems don't work because they keep in place that private health insurance system that has the incentive to continue to raise prices on all of us. 
It kind of reminds me a little bit of like the public schooling system. In, in effect, when you have these private uh, entities, the the rich often flee and they leave the most vulnerable in the most pu in the public institutions, yeah. and therefore it kind of cripples them. And then they could just say, "Well, look, the private's better," but the reality is is that they're just using the most victim victimized people in society to make a point by further punishing them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yep. Well, before we run out of time, we did want to do a. Uh, a fun segment, uh, like a quick round of uh, what we what we call this or that. Okay, so we're gonna right. give you a dichotomy here, and you have to pick one side. All right, it's all right, very American. It's very important. I love yeah. it. <laughs> uh, Americans were about choice. That's right. <laughs> so this or that, Abdul, Nicki Minaj or Cardi B? Cardi B. Yes. <laughs> he got it. Brandon didn't get it. Thank you. <laughs> hand again. Thank you. Okay. Big gun. All right. Uh, Iron Man or Captain America? Iron Man. Okay. okay. You got that Tony Stark. All right. Okay. And uh, I know this question will probably be dear to your heart. Uh, mint chocolate chip or cookie dough? Cookie dough. Solid. Hasn't Solid. been a wrong Who answer. Not that you could be wrong, cream. but you could be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are moments like when I feel like kind of uppity, I'll, I'll, I'll eat some chocolate chip. Like, <laughs> but, like, but if I just want ice cream, I mean, it's, it's cookie. It's like, how do you eat both cookies and ice cream at the same time? time. <laughs> and not even just like cooked cookies, but the best part. The best the part dough. of the cookie, that's right. yeah. That's right. I mean, don't even bother cooking. What's the point? And like, the funny thing about it is usually when they're cooked, I want them undercooked. So yeah. by that logic, I'm just like, why don't you just eat them fully undercooked? But warm. <laughs> just warm it up, and I'll eat warmed up. That's good. Microwaved cooking. <laughs> it makes sense to me. Now, I don't. I don't know if you've seen uh, both of these movies or not, but uh, Get Out or Us. I actually haven't seen both of them, so I'm gonna withhold. Okay, um, that's fair. And finally, finally, Abdul, uh, Beagles or Sri Tanadar. <laughs> Beagles. <laughs> but hey, Beagles wearing Shree's wig. Somehow more terrifying than Shree himself. Or just adorable. I mean, like a beagle with a jerry curl? <laughs> All right, well, I, th I think we're out of time now. So, uh, Abdul, thank you for being here. Uh, but I also wanted to let everyone know uh, the Sunrise Movement is taking a national tour uh, centered on the Green New Deal, and they're making a stop in Detroit tomorrow evening where you can catch Abdul uh, speaking alongside Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, you can find more information about this event at sunrisemovement.org slash Detroit. Uh, Abdul, before we go, uh, before you go, is there anything else uh, you have going on that you'd like our listeners to know about? Yeah, well, I um, I'm uh, keep 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 track. Just uh, check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Um, uh, got some got some cool things coming up. Um, mm -hmm. We'll be we'll be working on a uh, sort of storytelling health meets society podcast with the folks at Crooked Media. Okay, um, and then uh, got a book hopefully dropping this time next year. So hope folks will check it out, and um, we'll be talking a lot about. Uh, about some of the issues that we touched on here, and um, and then uh, let's just stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, was, what was the book called? I think I read it about it on your website. So you know, I'm I'm still toying with the the title now. Okay. Um, initially, it was meant to be called Moral Medicine, but it's actually not a book about healthcare. Mm. And the thing about Moral Medicine is it sounds preachy, and I don't want to sound preachy. Uh, you know what I mean? That's like, right. I feel like I feel like Moral Medicine is a book by a guy who likes mint chocolate chip. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm frankly a keto guy, so you know, uh, so, uh, so we're still working on the title, but uh, but I'm looking forward to, um, to to putting it out there. It's been a lot of fun to write. 
Very great. And then 2021, we'll have a book on Medicare for All, so I'm really excited about that, too. Okay, awesome. Well, again, Abdul, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to everyone for listening. Once again, you can find us on Facebook at Michigan Progressive. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and you can help support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michigan Progressive. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye. See you guys. Bye.